Chapter Twenty Two of the Marquis de Villemer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Céline Major. The Marquis de Villemer by Georges Sand. Translated by Ralph Keeler. Chapter Twenty Two. Caroline had reason to be alarmed by the inquiries Monsieur de Villemer was making at her sister's. He had already returned twice to Etampes, and, fully aware that delicacy forbade anything like a system of cross-questioning, he confined himself to watching the demeanour of Camille, and drawing his own inferences from her silent evasions. Thenceforth he might take it for granted that Madame Hudebert knew her sister's hiding-place, and that Caroline's disappearance gave her no real uneasiness. Camille held in reserve the letter which said Caroline had found employment away from France and did not produce it. She saw such anguish and distress in the features of the Marquis, which were already much changed, that she dared not inflict this last blow on the benefactor, the protector of her children. Besides, Madame Hudebert did not share all Caroline's scruples or comprehend all her pride. She had not ventured to blame her in this regard, but she herself would not have held it so great a crime to brave the displeasure of the Marchioness a little, and become her daughter-in-law notwithstanding. Since the intentions of the Marquis were so serious, thought she, and his mother loves him so that she dare not oppose him openly, and finally, since he is of age and master of his own fortune, I don't see why Caroline could not have used her influence over the old lady, her powers of persuasion, and the evidence of her own worth, and so led her gently to admit the propriety of the marriage. There, poor Caroline, with all her valiant devotedness, is too romantic and will go away and kill herself in order to support us, while with a little patient tact she might be happy and make us all happy too. Here is another common-sense opinion which may be set over against that of Pérac and Justine. Of these two lines of reasoning the reader is free to adopt the one that he prefers, but the narrator must of necessity hold an opinion also, and he avows a little partiality for that of Caroline. The Marquis perceived that Madame Hudebert made now and then some timid allusions to the state of things and felt sure she knew the whole. He threw himself on her mercy a little more than he had done hitherto, and Camille, encouraged, asked him with a sufficient want of tact, whether, in case the Marchioness proved inexorable, he was fully resolved to make Caroline an offer of his hand. She seemed on the point of betraying her sister's secret, if the Marquis would pledge his word of honour. The Marquis replied without hesitation, If I was sure of being loved, if the happiness of Mademoiselle de Saint-Genais depended on my courage, I would contrive to do away with my mother's prejudices at any cost. But you give me no encouragement. Only give me that, and you will see. I give you encouragement, exclaimed Camille, amazed and confused. She hesitated to reply. She had indeed divined Caroline's secret but the latter had always guarded it proudly, not by falsehood, but by never allowing herself to be questioned, and Madame Hudebert had not the daring to inflict a severe wound on her sister's dignity by taking it upon herself to compromise her. "'That is something I am no wiser about than you,' said she. "'Caroline has a strong character, one which I cannot always fathom.' "'And this strength of hers is so great,' said the Marquis, that she would never accept my name without my mother's sincere benediction. This I know better even than you do. So tell me nothing. It is for me alone to act. I ask of you only one thing more, 
and that is to let me watch over you and your children until something new shall occur, and even, yes, I will venture to say it, I am haunted by the fear that Mademoiselle de Saint-Genais may find herself without resources, exposed to privations which it makes me shudder to think of. Spare me this dread. Let me leave you a sum which you can return if there is no use for it, but which in case of need you will remit to her as coming from yourself. Oh, that is quite impossible, replied Camille. She would divine the source and never forgive me for having taken it. I see you are really afraid of her. Just as I am of all that commands respect. Then we feel alike, replied the Marquis as he took leave. I am so thoroughly afraid of her that I dare not seek her any farther, and yet I must find her again or die. Shortly afterwards, the Marquis drew an explanation from his mother which was painful enough to both of them. Although he saw her suffering, sad, regretting Caroline a hundred times more than she admitted, and although he had resolved to await a more propitious moment for his inquiries, the explanation came, in his own despite and in despite of the Marchioness, through the fatality of circumstances. The anxiety of the situation was too intense. It could not be prolonged. Madame de Villemer confessed that she had conceived a sudden prejudice against the character of Mademoiselle de Saint-Genais, and at the very moment of fulfilling her promise, she had let Caroline feel the exceeding pain it caused her. Gradually, under the eager questioning of the Marquis, the conversation grew more animated, and Madame de Villemer, pushed to extremity, allowed the accusation against Caroline to escape her. The unfortunate girl had committed a fault pardonable in the eyes of the Marchioness when acting as her friend and guardian, but one which made it quite out of the question even to think of receiving her as a daughter. Before this result of calumny, the Marquis did not flinch one instant. "'It is an infamous lie,' he cried beside himself. "'A base lie. And you could believe it. Then it must have been very artful and very audacious. Mother, you must tell me all.' for I am not disposed to be taken in so myself. No, my son, I shall tell you no more, replied Madame de Villemer firmly, and every word you add to those you have just uttered, I shall consider a breach of filial affection and respect. So the Marchioness remained impenetrable. She had promised not to betray Leonie, and besides, nothing in the world would tempt her to sow the seeds of discord between her two sons. The duke had so often told her, in Urbain's presence, that he had never sought or obtained a single kind look from Caroline. This, in the opinion of the Marchioness, was a falsehood the Marquis would never pardon. She knew now that he had taken the duke into his confidence, and that Gaetan, touched by his grief, had persuaded his wife into taking measures for seeking Caroline in all the Parisian convents. He does not speak, said the Marchioness to herself. He will not dissuade his wife and brother from this folly when he ought, at the very least, to have confessed the past to the Marquis in order to cure him of it. It is too late now to risk such avowals. I cannot do it without leading my two sons to kill each other after having loved so warmly. Meanwhile, Caroline wrote her sister as follows. You feel alarmed because I am in so uneven and rocky a region, and ask what can be fine enough to make one run the risk of being killed at every step. First of all, there is really no danger here for me under the guidance of this good Perrac. The roads that would be actually frightful, and as I think impassable for carriages like those with which we are familiar, are just large enough for the little carts of this region. Then, too, Perrac is very prudent. 
when he cannot measure with his eye just precisely the space he needs, he has a method of ascertaining it, which made me laugh heartily the first time I saw him put it in practice. He trusts me with the reins, jumps to the ground himself, takes his whip, which has the exact size of his cart, marked with a little notch on its stalk, and advancing a few paces on the road, he proceeds to measure the width of the passage between the rock and the precipice, sometimes between one precipice on the right and another on the left. If the road has a centimeter more than is needful, he comes back triumphant, and we go quickly by. If we have no such centimeter in which to disport ourselves, he makes me alight, while he leads the horse by the bridle dragging on the carriage. When we find two little walls hemming in a footpath, we place one wheel on either wall and the horse in the pathway. I assure you one soon becomes accustomed to all this, and already I think no more about it. The horses here have no vicious tricks, and are not inclined to shy. They know the danger as well as we, and accidents are no more frequent in this country than they are on the plains. I certainly exaggerated the danger of these jaunts in my first letters. It was from vanity or a lingering fear, of which I am wholly cured now that I feel it was groundless. As to the beauty of Velay, I could never describe it for you. I did not dream there could be, here in the heart of France, a country so strange and so imposing. It is far more lovely than Auvergne, through which I passed on my way hither. The city of Le Puy is probably unique in point of location. It is perched upon masses of lava that seem to spring up from its very heart and form a part of its architecture. These lava pyramids are indeed the edifices of giants, but those which man has placed on their sides, and often on their summits, have certainly been inspired by the grandeur and wildness of the spot. The cathedral is admirable in the Romanesque style, of the same color as the rocks, but slightly enlivened by the blue and white mosaics on the pediments of its façade. It is placed so as to seem colossal, for to reach it you must climb a mountain of dizzy steps. The interior is sublime in its elegant strength and solemn dimness. I never understood the terrors of the Middle Ages, or felt them, so to speak, as I did under these bare, black pillars, beneath these storm-laden domes. There was a furious tempest while I was there. The flashes sent their infernal lights across the splendid windows that strew the walls and pavements with jewels. The thunders seemed rolling forth from the sanctuary itself. It was Jehovah in all his wrath. But it gave me no alarm. The true God whom we love today has no menaces for the weak. I prayed there with a perfect faith and felt it had done me good. As for these beautiful temples of the faith in ages, both rude and stern, it is clear they are the expression of the one grand word, mystery, whose veil it was forbidden to lift. If Monsieur de Villemer had been there, he would have said, But a course of history and religious philosophy is not the point now. The ideas of Monsieur de Villemer are no longer the book from which I may study the past or learn to anticipate the future. You see, thanks to good Perrac and his desire to show me the marvels of Velay, thanks also to my impenetrable hood, I have ventured into the city and its suburbs. The city is everywhere picturesque. It is still a medieval town, closely studded with churches and convents. The cathedral is flanked by a whole world of ancient structures where, under mysterious arcades, and in the turns and twists of the rock they stand on, you can see cloisters, gardens, staircases, and mute shadows gliding by, hidden beneath veil and cassock. A strange silence reigns there, and a certain odor of the past, I know not what, which makes one shiver with fear, not of our God, 
the source of all confidence and spiritual freedom, but of everything that, in the name of God, breaks up forever the ties and duties of our common humanity. In our convent, I remember a religious life seemed cheerful. Here it is somber enough to make one tremble. From the cathedral you must keep going downhill for an hour to reach the Faubourg des Guilles, where another monument rears its head, which is natural and historic at one and the same time, and indeed the most curious thing in the world. It is a volcanic sugar-loaf three hundred feet in height, which you mount by a spiral stairway until you reach a Byzantine chapel, necessarily quite small, but charming and built, it is said, on the site and from the fragments of a temple to Diana. A legend is current here which struck me forcibly. A young girl, a Christian virgin, pursued by some miscreant, flung herself to escape him down the top of the terrace. She arose at once. She was unharmed. The miracle was noised abroad. She was declared a saint. Pride grew strong in her heart. She promised to hurl herself down again, to show she was under the protection of angels. But this time heaven deserted her, and she was crushed like a vain, silly creature as she was. Pride. Yes, God leaves the proud to themselves, and without him what can they do? But do not tell me that I am proud. No, it is not pride. I have no desire to prove anything to anyone. I ask to be forgotten, and that there should be no suffering on my account. There is near Le Puy, forming a part of its magnificent landscape, a village that also crowns one of those singular isolated rocks which break through the soil here at every step. It is called Espali, and this rock also bears up the ruins of a feudal castle and of Celtic grottoes. One of these caves is inhabited by two persons, aged and poor, whose squalid misery is heart-rending. This couple live here in the solid rock with a single hole for chimney and window. At night they block up the door in winter with straw, in summer with the old woman's petticoat. A small, rude bed without coverlids or mattress, two stools, a little iron lamp, a spinning wheel, and two or three earthen pots. These are all the furniture. Nevertheless, only a few paces from them there is a vast and splendid house belonging to the Jesuits and named the Paradise. At the foot of the rock flows a brook which brings down precious stones in its sand. The old woman sold me for twenty sous a handful of garnets, sapphires, and jacinths which I am keeping for Lily. The stones are too small to have any actual value, but there must be a precious deposit somewhere among these rocks. The Jesuit fathers will find it, perhaps. I don't expect to make the discovery myself, however, so I must think about procuring some work. Pirac has an idea which he has enlarged upon for the last few days, and which was suggested to him by this very rock of Espalie. I will tell you how. While strolling about over this rock, I was taken with one of my sudden fancies for a little child, playing in the lap of a pretty woman from the village who was strong and cheerful. This child, you see, I can compare with no one but our Charlie for inspiring affection. He does not look like Charlie, but has the same demure playfulness and the shy caresses which make one his willing slave. When I called upon Perrec to admire him, remarking how clean he was kept, and that his mother made no lace but seemed wholly taken up with him as if she knew she had a treasure there, Perrec at once replied, You have come nearer the truth than you thought. This child is a treasure for Dame Roquebert. If you ask who he is, she will tell you it is the child of a sister she has in Clermont. But this is not true. The little one has been placed in her charge by a gentleman whom no one knows, 
who pays her for rearing it, who pays her, besides, for taking great care of it, as if it were the son of a prince. So you see, this woman is well-dressed and does not work. She was in easy circumstances before. Her husband has charge of the castle of Polignac, whose great tower, and in fact all the ruined portion, you can see over yonder, on a rock larger and loftier than that of Espali. That is where she lives, and if you meet her here, it is because now she has such fine chances for pleasure strolls. The real mother of the little one must be dead, for she has never been heard of. But the father comes to see it, leaves money, and stipulates that it shall not be allowed to want for anything. You see, dear sister, this is a romance. That is partly what attracted me, perhaps, since according to your ideas I am quite romantic. Certainly this little boy has something about him which captivates the imagination. He is not strong. They say when he first came here he had hardly life enough to breathe. But now he is quite blooming, and the mountain air agrees with him so well that his father, who came here at about this time last year to take him away, decided to leave him a year longer in order to have him regain his strength completely. The little creature has an angelic face, dreamy eyes, with a far-off look in them, strange in a child of his age, and there is a wondrous grace in all his ways. Pirac, seeing me so bewitched, scratched his head with an air of profundity and continued, Well, tell me then, since you are fond of little children, why, instead of making it your occupation to read aloud, which must be wearisome, do you not find a little pupil like that, whom you could educate at your sister's with the other children? This would leave you in your own home, and to your own ways. You forget, my good Pirac, that perhaps it will be long before I can go to my sister. Well, then, your sister might come and live here, or else you could stay with us for a year or two. My wife would aid you in taking care of the child, and you would only have the trouble of watching over him and teaching him. Stop. I have an idea of my own about this child, since he pleases you so that you are doting on him already. His father will come after him one of these days. Suppose I should tell him about you. Then you are acquainted with him? I acted as driver for him once and carried him to the mountain in my carriage. He seems a fine man, but too young to take upon himself the bringing up of a child of three years. He will have to place it in charge of some woman, and he cannot leave it any longer with the Roquebers, for they are not capable of teaching what a young gentleman like him ought to know. This would be your own task, especially, and the father would never find so good a mother for his child. Hope, hope, which signifies wait, I will keep watch at Polignac, and as soon as this father arrives I will manage to talk with him in the proper way. I let good Pirac cultivate this project, and Justine also, but I have no faith in it myself for the mysterious personage expected will ask questions I am unwilling to have answered, unless I am quite sure he knows none of the people, either intimately or remotely, from whom my place of retreat must be concealed. And how could I make sure of that? Pirac's idea is nevertheless in itself a good one. To educate some child at home for a few years would please me infinitely better than going into a strange family again. I would rather take a girl than a boy, as she would be left with me a longer time. But there will be little room for choice, for these children hidden away by their parents are not easy to find. And there must needs be the most perfect confidence in me. I must be well recommended. 
Madame d'Arglade, who knows all the secrets of fashionable life, could find for me a chance like this. But I would rather not apply to her. Without intending to do so, she might bring upon me some fresh misfortune. End of chapter 22